Well, good morning. It's good to see everyone today. Our children are getting ready to go out and be with Miss Mary. So we're going to invite them to go. But I want to remind you, they are going with intentionality to encounter Jesus. Isn't that awesome? So we bless them as they go, and we celebrate with them. In addition to that, um, if you did not receive an index card when you came in that said either thanks God for or dear God, could you put your hand up? Our ushers, if you did not receive one, great. Everyone got one. That's good news. Awesome. We're good to go. We've been sitting on this bench for a long time. And next week will be our final visit to the bench for now. We're going to walk away from the bench. We're going to roll our way into Advent and Christmas and all those things. But I hope we don't forget what it is the Lord may have said to you, to me, to us as we've gathered on this bench. But I have thought to myself... You know, if there was, if I was sitting on a bench with Jesus, I, if I was actually like sitting with Jesus Christ on a bench, what would I say? What would I really say to him? You know, I know we, we think to ourselves, you know, when I get to heaven, I am going to ask God about, you know, why do leeches exist? You know, and these, but I wonder, I wonder what I would really ask him, what I would really say to him. So today, as we sit on the bench with Jesus, let's talk about that. At this point in time, if there was ever a miracle needed, it was now in the life of Jesus. He's having this amazing impact. He has such influence that thousands have gathered to listen to him. They've gathered together. And now the day is winding down. It's time to close up shop. The disciples are trying to get him to close things down and move on. We need to get these people home because if, if we don't get them home, they're going to get hungry. They're going to need food and they're going to probably, you know, become angry. They're going to get hangry. Anyone, anyone here ever suffer from being hangry? You know, a lot of you are not being honest today. It is like five hands went up, you know. So, yeah, I'm not good when I'm hangry. And they didn't want that. So they're trying to move the crowd along. But Jesus, well, Jesus tells everyone to stay put. And then he tells the disciples to do something about it. And the disciples are flummoxed. They're kind of like in a panic. What are we going to do with all these thousands of people? And then think about this poor little boy who brought his lunch with him. He's the only one who's prepared, it seems. And they spot this little boy and they kind of bring him over to Jesus. And I wonder if they were like bringing him over to Jesus saying, Jesus, see, this is impossible. We need to send him home. All we have is some loaves of fish, some loaves of bread and some fish. And they were probably like sardines some dried little fish for all these people. But you know, when you read the story, you realize Jesus is going, that's enough. 
And then like a great host at a banquet, Jesus says this, have the people sit down. And then we witness the miracle of the feeding of the 5,000. And here's what's interesting about this miracle. It is the only miracle recorded in every gospel. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, they all talk about this. They all were so struck by this. It was recorded by all of them. But I want you to think about what Jesus prayed before that miracle. Let's think about what he did not pray. Jesus did not pray, oh God, we need a miracle and we claim a miracle in your name. He didn't pray that. What did he pray? Well, let me take you somewhere else. Let me take you to a cemetery. To a scene in a graveyard where a family is weeping. And some seem to be confused and angry that Jesus did not do anything about the situation of their brother Lazarus dying. But the toll of death and grief also fractures the very heart of God as we hear the shortest verse in all of the Bible in John 11.35 that says, Jesus wept. The word for weep there actually is like the tears were pushing their way out of his face. And maybe you remember that Jesus stood outside the container of death that Lazarus was contained in. And he says, come out. Before that, he says, roll the stone away. And they look at Jesus as if he's crazy. They say, you know, he's been in there four days. And Martha says, Lord, it's going to stink. That's what she says. Do you remember what Jesus prayed for Lazarus? He didn't pray this. Lord, we claim authority over death and ask you to give life back to this man. He did not do this. He did not ask everyone outside the burial crypt to hold hands and agree together for a miracle. I'm not saying any of that stuff's wrong. They just didn't do it. So what did Jesus pray when the people sat in front of him on a hill, hungry in both body and soul? What did he pray? John 6, 11, Jesus then took the loaves, gave thanks, and distributed to those who were seated as much as they wanted. He did the same with the fish. And then we read in the next verse in the economy of the Bible, they all had enough to eat. No one went home hangry. As he stood outside the tomb of Lazarus in a puddle of tears, he's brokenhearted with a group of brokenhearted people. What did Jesus pray? John 11 tells us, Then Jesus looked up and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me. I thank you. And then he said, come out. And in the economy of the Bible, it says, the dead man came out. I love that. Come out. Okay. The dead man came out. Love it. It seems Jesus possessed a freedom 
to come to God with thanksgiving in all circumstances. Not sure about that? In Luke chapter 22, verse 19, the night before he was crucified, and he took bread, gave thanks, and broke it. And he gave it to them saying, this is my body given for you. Maybe the greatest miracle of all was the cross when your sin and my sin was carried to the cross and we found redemption. But before that, he says, thank you. Thank you, God. My body is given. He says, thanks, and then he suffers. He says, thanks, and then he dies. All circumstances. And we wrestle with that, rightfully so. I think we wrestle with that. But what if the example of Jesus points to the true power we find in a thank you? Now, we're not talking about the power of positive thinking, just trying to get our minds right. We're not talking about that. We're talking about something else. We're talking about the power to adopt, in the words of Russ Bredhold, a gratitude orientation. A grateful orientation to life, no matter what. What if life, what if I can orient my mind to the idea that life is all gift? Bob Benson, one of my favorite writers, describes this grateful orientation that really reflected from Jesus. Thanks if you can make the food go around. Thanks if we all have to go home hungry. Thanks if you raise Lazarus from the dead. Thanks if we leave this burial place with our hearts heavy with grief from the loss of our friend and brother. Thanks for your will. Thanks for your purpose. Thanks. Because we never really know what God might be up to, even in the worst of circumstances. So thanks, God. Thanks. I'm thinking of a circumstance in the life of one of our family members that it seems so awful and painful and sorrowful. But what's happening is a hope of help. Though it didn't look that way just weeks ago. Thank you, God. Thank you, God. I wonder if this is part of the revival prayer that we prayed last week as well. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven in all things. Thanks, God. Thanks, God. Let's go to one more miracle. Maybe the most compassionate miracle in all the Bible. In Luke chapter 17, beginning verse 11. To understand, though, we must understand what's really at stake here. We must understand what 
leprosy in the day of Jesus did to people. What it did to people. I'm not talking about the nature of the skin disease itself. I'm not talking about the potential for disfigurement. We talk about leprosy today and it's so foreign to us because it's been just almost completely eliminated from the world, though it still exists. But in Jesus' day, what it did to people was awful. If you saw a leper, your skin would crawl. Both in physical response, but also your religious skin would crawl. Branded as unacceptable. You're unacceptable. Deemed as unclean. They had to walk around going, unclean, unclean. And they were reduced to the humiliating act of begging because they had no other way to make money. They had no other way to survive other than their family members. Being a leper did mean social rejection and people avoided you, but it was worse than that. That's bad. That's awful. But it was worse. You see, if you were a leper, you were excluded from the synagogue and the temple. You could not worship at the place in the part that was the center of your faith. And in other words, you were considered so bad by some that you weren't even acceptable to God. That a sparrow, a, that a little bird that didn't have any defect would have entrance to the temple for sacrifice before you would. Well, that lends incredible insight into this passage. Now, on his way to Jerusalem, Jesus traveled along the border between Samaria and Galilee, and he was going into a village. Ten men who had leprosy met him. They stood at a distance. There's that distance. And they called out in a loud voice, Jesus, Master, have pity on us. When he saw them, he said, go. Show yourselves to the priests. And as they went, they were cleansed. One of them, when he saw he was healed, came back praising God in a loud voice. He threw himself at Jesus' feet and thanked him. And he was a Samaritan. There's so much that's here. <laughs> There's so much that can be said about this scene. But I think this is the piece that seems most remarkable to me. What is the miracle? What is the true miracle that's here? I think in some ways it's a miracle of restoring a person's own view of how God views them. Suddenly, suddenly, they're no longer unacceptable. Suddenly they're no longer deemed unclean for worship. And God's love and grace and welcome meets the least likely and the messiest of them all. But what's the real miracle? Listen to what Jesus says next. We're not all ten cleansed. Where are the other nine? 
Has no one returned to give praise to God except this foreigner? Then he said to him, rise and go. Your faith has made you well. How many lepers were healed? Ten. Ten lepers were healed. They were all healed. Only one returned to say, hey, Jesus, thank you. I praise you. Thank you so much. And listen again to what Jesus says. Rise and go. Your faith has made you well. I think Jesus is maybe saying, your thanksgiving from a heart of gratitude is a healing act of faith. I think what Jesus is talking about is not the leprosy. There's something deeper happening here. This is more than skin-deep healing. He's healing the leprosy of his heart. It's beautiful. God's grace penetrated deeper than the leprosy. This is soul-deep. Soul-deep. When we hear that word thanksgiving in all these places, these miracles that we've heard, it is one word. It is the word eucharisteo. It's where we get our term eucharist from. We refer to communion as eucharist. But at the heart of that word is my daughter's name. My daughter, my, our middle child, our youngest daughter, her name is Carissa. And at the heart of her name is a word, charis. And charis is the word for grace. And it's right there in the middle of the word, the most prominent word for thanksgiving in the New Testament, eucharisteo, charis. And it tells us that thanksgiving is a grace. Hmm. And according to the leper's life, according to the leper's experience, it was a saving grace. It saved his life. He gave thanks to God and God said, through Jesus, the Son of God, rise and go, your faith has made you well. I think we underestimate this grace. The power of this grace. What it does to us. Let's talk about that. Some of you are familiar with Anne Voskamp's little book on a thousand gifts. In that she writes, Thanksgiving is the manifestation of our yes to God's grace. Don't you love that? Then she goes on. She says, All those years I was thinking I was saved and had said my yes to God but was really living the no. What is she saying? The leper was healed. But it was when he came back with his thanksgiving that the deeper healing was done. And I think part of what she's saying is, yeah, I'm saved. I believed in God to be my Savior. and I asked Jesus to forgive me my sins. And... But there was a disconnect between that and how she dealt with her world and her circumstances, her life. And it was when she turned with a grateful orientation to God that she was fully saved. 
You see, this grace is even more pronounced since this leper was the least likely one to come for a number of reasons. He was the least likely to come. He was the most unwelcome. His circumstances were awful. But it made me think about something. Sometimes our life circumstances make us the least likely one to say thank you. Sometimes, sometimes who we are, we don't feel like we're good enough or acceptable or worthy. And the lesson I learn in that is, you see, when I feel that way, or when my circumstances are the worst, or the day seems bad, or it's just not adding up, or all the things seem stacked against me, that, that is the prime time for thanksgiving. I don't know about you, but it's pretty easy to say thanks when things are great, right? Anyone else have any problem saying thanks when everything seems super? But when that gets flipped upside down, thanksgiving has nothing to do Nothing to do with feeling. It becomes grace. Maybe there are those in our lives who are least likely to hear from us Thank you. Maybe our gratitude, because of the gratitude we have for what God has done, because of the gratitude we have for the gift, life as gift, maybe our gratitude to them becomes healing grace. I don't know if you caught the title of the message, but it's the life-transforming power of thanks. The life-transforming power of a thank you. I have a saying that's displayed in my office. It's in plain sight, and it's in plain sight for a reason. And this is saying, it's rather, rather lengthy, but hang with me. Erwin McManus writes this. As hard as it is, one of the first steps to getting past depression is gratitude. Because when you're grateful, you actually begin to see the good all around you. When you're grateful, you see the beautiful, and it actually fills you with hope. When you're ungrateful, he goes on, all you see is everything that's going wrong. And no matter how much someone does for you, it's never enough because when you're ungrateful, your soul is like a black hole. It consumes all the light and only leaves darkness. Now, please don't hear this from me. I am not simplifying complex issues like depression or anxiety disorders or despair. I'm not at all. But I do want us to think about this idea of thanks. I'm not saying that it's easy. It's not easy. 
It's a discipline of thanks. It's a choice of thanks. It's something we must actually practice. Tish Warren says this, learning to receive good things from God is difficult, especially if you've been hurt. It's hard. It's difficult. It takes practice to face the reality of darkness, but also to ask for and hope for light. What do we need in the darkness? We need light. Even the smallest, tiniest bits of life. Light. Kathleen has these like square little night lights that like you plug them in and then at night all of a sudden they light up. But they're like, you couldn't read according to them. They're, they're like, but, but I don't need a spotlight when I'm walking through the halls in the night. I just need a little bit of light so I don't trip, so I don't fall. And sometimes what we need in the darkness is not a big, great miracle of a star. I need the miracle of a pinpoint of light. And that's the power of thanksgiving. This does not suggest denying hardship. And it definitely does not suggest memorizing some religious cliches that we can just spout off pretending that things are not hard. This talks about tapping into the deep healing springs of grace. And there is a body of scientific evidence that verifies this. That validates this idea of thanksgiving as healing grace. One person who studied that is Dr. Pamela King. She's at Fuller Seminary in California, and she writes this, Focusing on gratitude does not deny the challenges of suffering, but allows us to let more light into our lives, even when our lives brush up against darkness or get stuck in the murky. Gratitude, and I like this, gratitude is a real, actionable, and practical way to let light in. Hear that last sentence. Gratitude is a real, actionable, and practical way to let light in. I don't know about you. I have a friend of mine who will say things like this, and I say things like this. Someone will tell me what to do, and I'll say, yeah, well, well but. Do you ever do that? Do you ever, do you ever do the yeah, but thing? And someone tells you all these wonderful things, and you go, well, yeah, but. And you then list all the excuses of why you can remain in the darkness. But gratitude is actionable. It is an actionable way. It is a practical way to let the light in. It is the most, and this is so counterintuitive, so counterintuitive, it is the most practical thing to do in hardship. At least it's hard. It's, it seems impractical at times to me. Just being honest. But something happens when you're grateful. Something happens to your brain. When you're grateful, your brain begins to light up. It starts firing off. And what it does 
is it increases the activity of the neurotransmitters of dopamine and serotonin. Right? When you, when you start being gra- grateful, the structure of your brain shifts. The physical structure of your brain. Doesn't that make a whole lot of sense when you're made in the image of God? That God would make us in such a way that when we're grateful, our brain actually physically is impacted and physically begins to impact us, hitting the very neurotransmitters that are responsible for happiness. Dr. Pamela King goes on and she says this, practicing gratitude similar to practicing other positive emotions actually changes neural structures in the brain and broadens and builds our capacities to withstand difficulties when they come. Do you want to prepare for the hardship that hasn't come yet? Become a person with a grateful orientation. It actually prepares your brain for that heartache that's coming. How good is our God? Could this be why, I wonder, could this be why from the Old Testament to the New Testament, from singers to sages, from saints to the Savior, we are commanded to the healing discipline of thanksgiving over and over and over again? Could it be that we are commanded to thanksgiving because it is then we actually begin to see what Jesus really does for us in life and who Jesus really is. How John described Jesus in the first chapter of the Gospel of John. In him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. And what happens if I express thanksgiving to God, if all of a sudden those, those neuropathways in my brain begin to fire off, and all of a sudden I become more aware of the light of Jesus Christ in the darkness? I don't know about you, that's a miracle. That's neat. And it's true. That's exciting. Because gratitude uniquely positions us in our vision of life and the world to see the light of God in the nuts and bolts of life, all of life. And here's what's really important. When things are really great, Ignatius called that consolation. When things are really great, we need to store that stuff up. We need to remember the goodness of God, how good God has been to us. Because I promise you, you're going to come to the place that Ignatius calls desolation. I promise you, you're coming. You're going, to be, you're going to get there. If you haven't been there yet, you're going to find your way there at some point. And we all experience it in different ways. But it's there that we remember. Did you hear the psalm that Bob read for us today? Psalm 78, verses 1 through 7. It's all about recounting the history. 
handing it to the generations, talking about what God has done. They go over and over the history of God, over and over and over and over. Why do they do that? Well, one reason they do that is to keep the grace and the story of God in front of them to remember that God works even in the dark places. And then what that does to us is that invites us to extend that same healing grace to others. I'm captivated by how Paul puts this in the book of Colossians. He says, so then, just as you received Christ Jesus as Lord, just as you received all of that grace of Jesus, continue to live your lives in him, rooted and built in him, strengthened in the faith as you were taught, and get this, overflowing with thanksgiving, thankfulness. And here's the kicker. That word for overflowing means to exist in excess. Do you want to be excessive? He's saying be excessive with your thanksgiving. <laughs> He's saying go over the top. Go over the top with your thanksgiving. Doesn't matter if it makes other people uncomfortable. Go over the top. If we are to be excessive in anything, <laughs> it needs to be thanksgiving. <laughs> and I know that's true for me. If I need to be excessive in anything, I need to be excessive with thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Look at Jesus in the 5,000. <laughs> there is no way this looks like there's going to be a good resolution. Thank you, God. No one got hangry that day. <laughs> Jesus, in a cemetery, everyone is broken up. Everyone is crying. This is Jesus. The, what do you, what? Open the, no. You're crazy, Jesus. And maybe they thought he was crazy because it stunk inside. Or maybe they thought, oh, you're going to make a fool out of yourself, Jesus. Did you hear what Pastor Leo said when she prayed, oh, God, we prayed these foolish prayers? Do you think some people were watching Jesus saying, man, he's a fool? And he says, thank you. And the dead are raised. And he sits around a table the night before he gives his life for the redemption of the world when he knows he's walking into the tornado of the cross and he says, thank you. And a leper who is healed, who walks on his way, who did not have to turn around and say thank you. He was already healed. The job was already done. But something was crawling inside him that caused him to go back and fall on his face before Jesus. That's what the text says. He fell on his face for one reason. Thank you. Praise you. This is the excess of gratitude. This is what it looks like. So what does it mean for me? What does it mean for Jeff DeFrancis and Jeff DeFrancis' life? Not as I want it to be, but as it is. Not as I long for it to be, but, but as it actually is. As I walk through it, because that's where the light meets us. Right where we are. As we walk in the light with him. He gives us more light. If you walk in the light, you gain more light. 
We gain the fellowship with Jesus in the life we live. So what does it mean for me to overflow with gratitude in the life I live now? I want to propose to you that there's such power in this that we should start a movement of gratitude. In a world that's so caustic and oftentimes negative, what happens if we launch a movement of gratitude? I mean, there's an awful lot of stuff to complain about, right? I, I'm, I'm a pretty good complainer. What about you? Anyone else, anyone else here a good complainer, right? Thank you, John. He puts his hand way up in the air. Thank you, brother. Yeah. There's a lot. There's a lot to be discouraged about, right? Some, some days your feet hit the ground and it's hard. And if it's not something you've read online or in the news or something, it might be the circumstance you're facing that day or the news you got the night before. Well, what would happen if we started a movement of gratitude? Well, to attempt to practically help us with that, let me share with you two actions. Why don't you take out that index card that you found when you got here, you were given. Um, some of you have the one that says, thanks, thanks God for, and others of you have the one that says, um, dear God. So here's, here's the question. What would you write on a thank you card if you were writing a thank you card and sending it to God? What would you write? Now, it's a little difficult to put postage on a card you're going to send to God. It's a little challenging. But I've begun to fill mine out, and here's the, here's the beauty of this card. Um, you don't have to just put one thing down. I have four so far that I've listed. Um, here's the one that I wanted to share with you that's in the center. Thanks, God, for the gifts of people in my life. I was so overwhelmed when I began to say, what do I say? What do I say thanks to God? It's easy to, to say, you know what? I'm going to come up with this idea, the, the way we're going to end the sermon. We're going to do this. And then you have to do it. And then I said, oh, what, am I, what am I thankful for? Here's the, here's, the, here's the secret. God is in the details. Get granular. Get into the details and offer thanks. So I started with the gifts of people in my life. Thanks, God, for them. I am rich beyond words in the people you have brought into my life. And then I started getting more granular. And I started listing some things. So what I want to invite you to is, that's your card, Here's how you send that to God. You take that, you write on it what you'd like, and even if you don't write anything on it, just if you just want to have thanks God for or dear God, put it in your car. If you use a physical Bible, like I have a big Bible at home I read from, stick it in your Bible when you're going to read that. 
Put it maybe in bathroom mirror so you see it first thing in the morning or by your bedside so you see it when you go to bed at night. And let's start with the practice, the movement of gratitude vertically. We are commanded over and over and over again. Why? So that those neurotransmitters in our brains will fire off and we will experience the light of God is one reason why. So let's start there. All right, so that's, that's the first part. But then when you leave today, we have thank you cards that are already stamped Already ready for you, all you have to do is write a thank you to someone, address it, and drop it in the mail. I know in this day, day and age of texting and emailing and all those things, messaging, and it might seem easier, but that's the point. Say thank you to somebody. Let's start a movement of gratitude. Thank you to somebody. Think about the person least expecting to get a thank you from you. And send them a thank you. Think about someone whose life has changed your life and you need to say thank you. Think about someone who's done something nice for you. And say thank you. You don't have to even say, you know, I just want to thank God for you. In fact, I would encourage you not to say that. Say thank you to them. Thank you for what you've done in my life. So when you leave here today, you don't have to take one of these, but we have enough for everybody. So that when you go out here today, the ushers are going to hand you one of these. And, and, and some of you are going to go, awesome, give me five. No, one. <laughs> you can get one. We want you to think of one person. And let's unleash the life-transforming power of gratitude. Amen? Stephen Machia said this, to be grateful rather than critical, thankful rather than cynical, and glad-hearted rather than bitter-minded is to be filled to overflowing with an abundance that sustains life. As our worship team comes, I want to tell you what I would want to say to Jesus on the bench. You probably figured it out. There's all kinds of things I'd like to ask him. But what I really want to say to Jesus is thank you. Thank you, Jesus, that one day you encountered me. And I was lost. And I was far from you. And someone shared with me the truth that if I would just trust you with my life, you would forgive me of my sins and you would come and dwell in me and give me new life. And thank you, Jesus. Thank you, thank you, Jesus, for the way in which your life has changed my life. 
I'd want to just say, thank you, Jesus. Thank you for the things that you have taught me and the ways in which you've encountered me. Thank you, Jesus, for the, the people that you've impacted my life with that I don't deserve. Thank you. It's mostly about people. Right? It's all about people. Thank you for my faithful wife. My children who I love deeply. Thank you for my pastoral colleagues who carry weight. Thank you for church leaders who show up. Thank you for a congregation that sometimes laughs at bad jokes. But who's more of my family than my own biological family? Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> so, let's start it, okay? Let's start a movement of gratitude. It's the most counterintuitive thing we could do in our world today. Find someone to just let them know. And you know what might happen? Your thank, thank you might give them some bread and might feed their soul. Your, your thank you might raise their dead soul to life. Your thank you might heal a brokenness inside of them. that you wouldn't even imagine. And your thank you may show them the one who before he suffered and died for you and me said, thank you. Your thank you might show them Jesus. <laughs> so, when you go, have your thank you to God. Send it to him as you want. You're going to get a card if you want it, a thank you card. No one has to. But let's start a movement of gratitude. Amen? Amen. Let's stand together.